47. If you do not have a copy of the Bible with you, the sermon text is printed in the worship order. And while you're looking for that passage, I want to say to you that someone told me one of the funniest things I've ever heard before a worship service this morning. I appreciate the honesty with which they said it and the spirit with which they said it. But here's what they said as I came into the service with them. They said, where is the best place to sleep? I thought it was funnier than that. <laughs> Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. Now last week... We heard that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But this week, we will see that the judge becomes the accused. In other words, God in the flesh is being tried in the court of public opinion. In response to this, Jesus calls on a variety of witnesses who will provide evidence to verify his identity and his character. Our sermon text for today comes from John 5, 30 to 47. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And I urge you with all your heart to pay attention to God's holy word. The Word of God reads, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That is the word of God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. 
Now keep in mind the context of this passage of Scripture. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because He had healed a lame man on the Sabbath day and because He called God His Father and thus claimed to be equal with God. In response to the threat of His accusers, Jesus said something very important. I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As the God-man, Jesus received authority from the Father and He received ability from the Holy Spirit to do God's will. In other words, Jesus did not act independently or autonomously. He did not come to do His own thing His own way. He was a man with authority, under authority. Even when he was put on trial by his accusers, he did not overplay his divine authority. He submitted to the Father's will and he stood counsel, stood trial before his accusers. In his book, God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis writes that the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now, I'm not one to argue with C.S. Lewis, and I will say that in general, what he says here is true. But when we look at the Gospels, we see ancient man approaching the God-man as judge, jury, and executioner. In other words, Jesus, the God-man, is put in the dock. The Word made flesh, came to His own people, but His own people did not recognize Him. Light came to darkness, but darkness did not comprehend it. From the start of his public ministry until now, his own people were opposing him, persecuting him, and seeking ways to kill him. The speech that we just read from the Gospel of John was offered up by Jesus as a defense against his accusers. Now what is so interesting to me about this is that those ancient people were super religious monotheists. They believed God was there and that He was not silent. And yet, when God came near, they put God on trial because they had no idea who He was or what He was doing. I want to suggest to you that the very same thing is happening in our day, not only with super-religious people, but also with super-religious atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. Yes, despite their claims, they are deeply religious. They hate every form of religion except their own religion. The point that I want to make here is that these new atheists falsely accuse Jesus of all sorts of nonsense and they pass harsh judgments on the person and work of Christ. In other words, as C.S. Lewis said, they become the judges and they put God in the dock. A historical evidence to the contrary, some of these new atheists rant and rave that Jesus did not even exist, that he was simply the stuff of myth and legend, and that he was a delusional madman. They have a terrible habit of misrepresenting people and ideas that they don't like, especially 
if they come from a different religion than their religious atheism. They are blinded by their hatred of divine authority, crippled by their ignorance of the truth, and defensive of their autonomous little egos. They foolishly insist that God is dead, and they zealously assert that man is the measure of all things. For example, in his book, The End of Faith, new atheist Sam Harris boldly and arrogantly asserts, we are the final judges of what is good, just as we are the final judges of what is logical. The only angels we need to invoke are those of our better nature, reason, honesty, and love. The only demons we must fear are those that lurk inside every human being. Ignorance, hatred, greed, and faith, which is surely the devil's masterpiece. To which we might simply reply, Really? By what standard? We denounce that man is the standard of right and wrong. We denounce that man is the arbiter of what is good and bad. Rather, we confess that God, as revealed in the Word made flesh, is the standard of reason, honesty, and love. Now, we affirm with Sam Harris that ignorance, hatred, and greed lurk inside every human being, including Sam Harris. But we deny that faith is the devil's masterpiece. Rather, faith in anyone or anything other than the triune God is the devil's masterpiece. As a side note, I must say that I find it strangely inconsistent and terribly sad that Sam Harris believes in the devil and his works, but not in God and his works. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but God comes in the flesh to give life and save. Now, like other new atheists, Sam fails to understand that his personal finite human standard simply does not measure up to the personal infinite divine standard revealed to us by the Word made flesh. So what can we say to all of these things? We simply say that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Like an outraged toddler drumming his heels on the floor, it has only shouted and screamed against the light. Jesus turns the tables and flips the script on all his ancient and modern accusers when he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So it seems that ancient man and modern man have something in common after all. Both attempt to judge and condemn God in the flesh from the darkness, and yet both will be judged and condemned by the light unless they recant their charges and receive Christ by faith. The late Christian apologist Greg Bonson reminds us that the Christian life and worldview does not require us to consign God to the dock, awaiting the verdict of an autonomous rebel. Instead, it constantly reminds us that sinful man is in the dock before the awesome bar of God's scrutiny and judgment. 
It encounters him with the intellectual challenge of the gospel. Unlike everyone, from Adam to the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day to Sam Harris and the New Atheist in our day, Jesus did not revolt and rebel against authority. Rather, he respected it and he rejoiced in it. And that brings us back to the story at hand. It has been said that Jesus Christ is the most significant man who ever lived. It has also been said that Jesus is the most influential man who ever lived, the smartest man who ever lived, and the wisest man who ever lived. And to that list, I want to add that Jesus Christ is also the most judged man who ever lived. No one in the history of the world has been evaluated, scrutinized, assessed, criticized, and examined like Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most judged man who ever lived. When God came in the flesh for the life of the world, He made Himself vulnerable. He put Himself out there to be tested and tried even in the court of sinful man. Now, as is the case with anyone on trial, the accused needs solid evidence to mount a defense, especially when death is on the line. So Jesus calls on a variety of witnesses to verify his identity and character. The witnesses that he calls are the proof and the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word made flesh for the life of the world. Now, Jesus is very clear. He does not call himself as a witness, nor does he call John the Baptist as a witness. Rather, he calls his Father God as the divine witness. Now, as much as Jesus appreciated John's human testimony in this story and at this trial, Jesus calls on the true and better testimony of his Father. Jesus explains that his father's testimony about his identity and character is revealed in two ways. It is revealed in the signs performed by Jesus, and it is revealed in the scriptures penned by the prophets. In other words, the witnesses that Jesus calls upon from God the Father come in the form of his works and his words. And that's what we're going to focus on for the remainder of this message. In John 5, 30-36, Jesus calls on the testimony of His Father, the witness of the signs. Now up to this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has performed many signs and works in the presence of God and man. We've already seen Him turn water into wine, drive money changers out of the temple. We heard Him teach an old religious man new Gospel truths. We saw Him give a thirsty woman living water. We saw him heal a terminally ill son of a desperate nobleman. And we saw him make a lame man rise and walk on the Sabbath day. In all of these things, Jesus went about doing good works and giving rest and relief to a restless people. And John makes it clear that Jesus did many other signs which he did not record in this book, which we have not seen. But these signs are God's evidence and proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, namely the Son of God. 
The signs and works of Jesus are divine witnesses. They are part of the Father's testimony in defense of Jesus. Now, we are probably more impressed with the witness of signs than perhaps some of Jesus' accusers were. But a shrewd prosecutor might object that these signs are not valid witnesses because only a few local, backwoods, bronze-necked people saw them if they ever really happened at all. We believe they happened. But I can understand why skeptics and critics would question it. Unlike many modern religious folks, Jesus' accusers were skeptical of signs and wonders. In their day, there were so many hucksters going around that they had to be highly skeptical of these sensationalized testimonies. They needed more reliable witnesses than someone's personal experience. At this time, it might be good to make an observation. Have you ever noticed that no one who was healed or saved or delivered by Jesus in these stories ever capitalized on it? No one ever started a movement. No one ever got a book deal. No one ever made a movie. No one ever created a devotional guide based on their experience with Jesus. If only they had known about the evangelical marketing machine. Can you imagine what the Samaritan woman could have done with her story, A Stranger in the Desert? Can you imagine the money she would have raked in? And who knows what kind of near-death experience story the nobleman's son could have told. And the lame man could have made a documential about his experience and called it from broken legs to broken laws or something like that. I'm glad you didn't laugh because it's really not funny, unlike my previous joke. The fact is that there was no market among Orthodox people for such myths and fables like Jesus Calling and 90 Minutes in Heaven or The Shack. <coughs> Things were different then. It is true that sometimes Jesus' critics demanded signs, but you notice they always demanded more than signs and more than subjective stories about signs. These guys were so old school that they actually demanded book, chapter, and verse. They insisted on the more reliable word of the law and the prophets. So again, nothing against signs. We're in the middle of a book that is a book of signs. It's about signs. The signs in this book were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But even Jesus called on the more reliable testimony of his father, which was revealed in the witness of the Holy Scriptures. And we will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Let's look at that second witness, the Scriptures or the writings, 537 to 44. We shift our attention to the Scriptures and we need to know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about from someone's own private interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So when Jesus appeals to the scriptures, he is appealing to the sacred writings that were produced by the Holy Spirit through the mouths and the hands of men. Like the scripture or like Jesus, the scriptures are both divine and human. Now, Jesus refers to the Scriptures as His Father's testimony about Him. He says, The Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. And then He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the quote. His voice you have heard, His form you have never seen. If you go back to Deuteronomy 4 and you read the context and you see that Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he says to them, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. Now, you probably know the rest of the story that even though God spoke to Moses and gave his word to his people through Moses, God's people rejected His Word and did not keep it. One reason Jesus refers to this passage, one reason He quotes this, is so that He can make a point to His accusers. And the point is this. The same thing is happening right now. Right here. In the past, you did not see His form. You only heard a voice. But now, God in the flesh is in front of you and you're doing exactly what your forefathers did. You do not have His Word abide in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You guys are no better and no different than your forefathers. So once again, we see here Jesus is on trial. He's, to be, he's the one being accused. And yet you see how He flips the script. And He accuses His accusers of not having God's Word in them. Can you imagine how offensive that must have been? I mean, after all, they were a people of the book, by the book, and for the book. They put Bible in Bible belts. And yet Jesus levels this charge against them. You have God's Word, but it is trapped in your scrolls, locked in your Bibles, stuck on your refrigerators, but it is not in your heart, mind, and soul. And then he goes for the knockout blow by leveling the mother of all charges against them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you do not want to come to me in order that you might have life. Like many Bible quoting, professing Christians, even in our day, those religious leaders treated the Bible as a specimen to be examined and explored by man, not a source of life to be embraced and to be imbibed by man. Like many modern scholars and theologians, they appealed to their reason and expertise. They applied those things to the Scriptures, but they did not allow the Scriptures to apply itself to them. They wrongly believed that they were living and active, but the Scriptures were simply dead and passive. They treated the Bible as a destination point 
and it became a dead end in itself to them. Like many people I know, they wanted the Scriptures, but they did not want the Savior. Now before we pass judgment on Jesus' accusers, let's consider our ways. You know as well as I do that some of us treat the Bible like a giant fortune cookie. We crack it open and hope that it tells us something good. Some of us treat the Bible like a horoscope. We, we want it to predict our future and hope that it has fortune and perhaps even fame. Some of us treat the Bible like a weapon. We wield it to go after our enemies so we can cut them down and shoot them up. Some of us treat the Bible like pop psychology. We read the parts that make us feel good about ourselves, and we ignore the parts that make us feel bad about ourselves. But Jesus says there's a better way to read the Bible, a truer way to read the Bible, and this is it. Jesus says that we should read the Bible like a massive Where's Waldo picture book. In other words, we should read the Bible and know that the whole story is about Jesus. That he is hidden in plain view on every page of the scriptures. Jesus is saying to us, as he said to his accusers, if you search for me, you will find me. If you search for me with all your heart, I'm right there on the page. And if you find him, you will also find eternal life. Your heart is boss says that in his treatment of the Bible, Jesus was the most orthodox of the orthodox. Jesus regarded the whole Old Testament movement as a divinely directed and inspired movement as having arrived at its goal in himself. Now, we could spend all day today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that to infinity and beyond showing how one Old Testament text after another points to Jesus. And I want to say parenthetically that if that's something that you would like to do together, just say the word. I encourage you, I challenge you to fill my schedule up with conversations about these things. There is nothing that I would rather do more than walk through the Bible with you, seeking and finding Jesus. So I invite you to fill up my schedule this summer, and let's see who we can find and how we can find Jesus everywhere in the Bible. But suffice it to say for now that all the scriptures... From the law to the prophets, from the history to the poetry, all the scriptures testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now clearly, searching the scriptures and reading the Bible is good, but it is not good enough. There is a, a right way to read the Bible and there is a wrong way to read the Bible. The right way to read the Bible is to read it as a means to knowing and growing in Jesus Christ. The wrong way to read the Bible is to read it as a means to some other end besides knowing and believing in Jesus. Or to read it as an end in itself as Jesus' accusers did. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Gropp, says this. The Old Testament is not purely an academic object for our study, but it is the Word of God to us, the Word that God has spoken, and the very words through which He continues to speak to us. 
The whole Old Testament is all about the Gospel. And the Gospel is all about Jesus Christ. So remember that the Bible is an interstate, not a cul-de-sac. It's not our destination, but our transportation to Jesus Christ. And remember that the Bible is a muse, not a museum. Its stories and songs preside over the arts and sciences. It is the story of inspiration and illumination for people recreated after the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might not be aware of this, so I feel compelled to say it to you. You have a privilege of knowledge which makes even the angels and the prophets jealous. You have a privilege of knowledge that makes even the angels and the prophets jealous. Peter said the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours in Christ searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me urge you with all your heart, do not live below your privilege, but take advantage of your privilege to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is far more truth, far more goodness, far more beauty in the Scriptures than may be found in all the internet, TV, Pinterest, the mall, the beach, novels, music, university, science, politics, sports, and experience combined. To misquote Mr. Keating, we don't read the Bible because it's cute. We read the Bible because we are seeking Jesus' face. And His face is filled with light and love. True, medicine, law, business, engineering, these are all noble pursuits and necessary to sustain human life. But truth, beauty, goodness, and love, these are the things we live for. And that brings us to perhaps the most damning thing Jesus said to His accusers in this story. I know you, that you do not have the love of God within yourselves. How did Jesus know that they did not have God's love in their hearts? Was it because they were not reading the Bible the right way? Was it because they were asking hard questions? Was it because they had deeply rooted traditions? Was it because he was a mind reader? No. He knew that they did not have God's love in their hearts because of their words and because of their works. They did not receive him. They rejected him. They did not honor him. They hated him. All the evidence proved 
that they were seeking to kill him. And in seeking to kill him, they showed that God's love was not in their hearts. Now, brothers and sisters, I cannot overemphasize the gravity of this truth to you, but I will try. Your love for God and your love for one another is truer and better than your knowledge of the Bible. How do I know that? I know that because the Bible tells me so. Whoever does not love his brother is not of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As your pastor, I want you to know God's word as much as you can possibly know it, so that you may know the love of Christ. But I also want you to love God and His people as much as you can possibly love them. But I do not want you to choose either knowledge or love. I want you to choose both love and knowledge. And keep them together. One final thought and we'll be done for today. The last thing we'll look at is the Savior. Five 45-47. I want to remind you that at the end of all things, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will stand trial, not God. You and I will be in the dock, not God. Our accuser will make a case against us. The evidence will be stacked against us. His evidence will be, in many ways, right and true. There will be enough there that we will be found guilty. We will give an account for our thoughts, words, and deeds. And after our accuser has made his case against us, we must ask, what will our defense be? Will it be that you did your best you tried hard, that you were not as bad as others, that you could have been worse, that you didn't always know right from wrong, or maybe some other weak defense. Let me assure you that none of these defenses will help you. None of these defenses will save you. They will not take away your guilt or keep you from condemnation. On the day of judgment, the best and only defense you and I can offer will be this. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh for the life of the world. The Lamb of God came to take away sins, my sins. And by grace, I turned from my sins and trusted Him to save me. I confess that I am a great sinner. My accuser is right. But I also confess that Jesus is a greater Savior and my accuser is wrong. Jesus Christ is all the defense you will ever need. That defense is enough to take away your guilt, your sin, to make you innocent and righteous both now and later, today and forever. So if you trust Him as Lord and Savior, 
We urge you to keep on trusting Him and turning away from your sins for His glory and for your good. But if you have never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, we urge you to do so now that you may have forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God. And if you've done something like that before, but you've lapsed or fallen away, then we urge you today to turn back from death and to trust Him again that you may have life.